Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. This episode gets into a lot of stuff about mental health, wellness, self-care and more. I sometimes get labelled as a bit of a Grinch from my views on Christmas, but as much as it's loaded with excitement and good times for many, I'm always aware that it's a really lonely time for others. I know you hear this pretty much everywhere these days, but it's super important to reach out to people if you're struggling mentally or emotionally. If there's people in your life you feel like you can talk to, then please do. But if not, there are organisations like Samaritans, Mind, and another place that Brandon mentioned, which I wasn't aware of, is the Hub of Hope. And they're all a quick Google away. I hope you enjoy this conversation with one of the UK's biggest DJs of the superstar era, someone who's done way too much for us to list it all, and nowadays gives a lot of time back to helping others, Mr. Brandon Block. Let's go. Brandon Block, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Pleasure, Ad. Nice to see you. Sorry it's taken so long to get this little... Uh get together going but um we've got we've got the early end that's fine mate you're brandon block you're far busier than i am <laughs> actually mate i'm probably not at the moment which is nice but um i get what you're saying yes yeah, but no i'm not <laughs> you've just come back from doing a retreat haven't you well yeah yeah we did that that was in uh october um one of the most uh, uh profound incredible experiences although i was running it i also myself had a um uh, a moment, let's say, um, of, um, how would I say it? Um, an emotional awakening. Um, a journey happened with, while I doing a breathing exercise, which, you know, um, I've had experiences before of transcending sort of thing or being in the moment. And, uh, this was quite an, a, a profound experience, you know, like being, um, it's very rare that you can, I mean, it's not now that a lot of people have got a lot of skills around getting into the present moment and being, you know, yeah. uh, thinking about what's happening or thinking about what's going to happen or thinking about stuff in the past. Um, being in that moment and being clear of anxiety and fear and stress, whatever you want to call it, uh, adrenaline, any of the hormones that, you know, you release with day-to-day life and just being you is very rare. Very rare, but mm. you know, um, great experience. The retreat, all the lads had a, a fantastic time. Uh, all had incredible emotional breakthroughs, spiritual breakthroughs. Really, like you know, uh, a lot of people have never done something like that before. Um, you're sharing openly, sharing trauma that you just thought, "Wow, I never would have thought this person 
you know, you know, we all make judgments based on what we think we know, or based on what we see or what we hear. Um, and yet, the truth of the matter is that we all have stuff that has happened to us in our past. All of us, you know, hundred percent. It's never been, you know, no one's past has been ideally perfect. I just won't believe anyone who says that. So, you know, and and how we deal with those traumas moving forward is, you know. Uh, tough i mean look the good thing about nowadays is in the modern world although there's a lot of things i don't like there's a lot of things that are good like the the available availability of information i.e this sort of stuff um mental well-being uh you know physical well-being emotional well-being um all these you know these coaches practitioners whatever a lot of people out have this human condition awakening uh, you know, but for me, I like to help people just because I like to help people. I have been through, you know, I don't, I don't like charging for it. I think it's, you know, it becomes, um, it doesn't sit with my ethics, let's say. Now, I, I, I think that's really interesting because I was having a similar conversation with a hypnotherapist earlier today who um, was saying the same thing. And my kind of counterpoint to that was, where you run a risk with that is that I think you'll probably be someone who thinks that time is more valuable than money. I would guess. Brandon, Brandon, can you give me an hour of your time or Brandon, can you give me yeah, but 20 quid? Yeah, no, but yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I would probably feel better doing an hour of my time uh, as opposed mm. to, yeah, I'm, I don't mind there's someone 20 quid. That's not the issue. It's not about the money. It's about the... I think what 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 I'm trying to say, though, is that I think if you don't charge, what there's, there's a slight danger of is that other people might not appreciate your time. I get all that. I get that. I, I get the accountability. And if you don't charge, I mean, look, I've got a friend who's been coaching me with my um, diet and my sort of gym workout. But he lives in Switzerland and he's one of the old dream boys. And I met him in Ibiza 30 years ago, and we had a mm. bit of a session. We've been friends ever since, but we never saw each other. All of a sudden, funny enough, he's from like Birmingham area, Leicester. Uh, I, I was in my local petrol garage where I lived in Northwest London, and there he is, filling up his car. Turns out he'd moved in around the corner. But, you know, he lives in Switzerland now, Sweden now, so I don't see him, but he's been coaching me online. He's a keto trainer. He's 55, and he's ripped like you've never, 2% body fat. Um, He's been doing it for years, but I said, well, I'm finally ready to take the plunge and have a go with you coaching me. Um, he said, I'm going to charge you because you won't, you won't I'd be accountable if I don't. It'll be like, well, I'm not paying for it, so I'll just take it or leave it. And, you know, mm. I've I've stuck to the program for three months. I've lost 10 kilos. I'm putting more weight on without doing weight training. Yeah. I feel wholeheartedly better. Um it's an achievement, another goal sort of, I suppose, achieved, something I wanted to do. I procrastinated about using weight for a long time, but more recently, it just got painful again because I got a bad hip. Um, and, you know, I went up to 95 kilos. For me, it's a, it's a heavy weight. Yeah. It's a lot of weight around my stomach and, you know, um, so I've lost 10 kilos, which is two stone. It's not coming off as quick now. Um, and like most humans, we want it to happen now you know instant gratification is always the key um 
which is why we go to substances and stuff, which has worked quickly. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm digressing a bit. I get what you're saying. Um, it's just for me that, well, I got my help, let's say, for free back in the day. Mm. Um, and I, look, I think it's not totally true. I do, I, I, I ask for a token now. Yeah. I say, look, I need, you know, you pay for me 10 sessions or whatever. Uh, obviously, the first one, I will, will have an assessment. See if you want to work together. See if there's anything. I mean, you know, generally what happens is, and I've found it recently, is that um, I've said to a friend of mine who contacted me about, you know, drugs, drink, whatever, or whatever else it is, their thinking changes, behavior changes. I said, look, we'll have a chat. I'll give you some pointers. Tell me if it works, if it doesn't. And and then you can sign up um, if you want 10 sessions, five sessions, whatever it is. And invariably what's happened is they've um, uh, – They've said, oh, I've had a great week. I've had nothing. I'm all right. Blah, blah, blah. And I guarantee you in a month's time, they'll be back going, who? Yeah. So so we've gone we've gone in pretty deep there on on kind of what life and work looks like for Brandon Block in 2023. If people are familiar with the sort of mid-90s, yeah. let's say version of you, for lack of a better word, it might be a little bit confusing to them. So- Let's go to the start of your story, if we can, yeah. and just kind of look at what your arc is and what's brought you to where you are today, if that's cool. Absolutely, mate. Let's start with DJing then. Okay. Um, so I've I've read a bit, and as I mentioned before, I don't want to labor on this. You know, you've got your book out. There's a load of information about it, but it'd be really nice to go in on some key sort of touch points. So the book came out in 2011. It's quite old now. Uh, and none of this stuff I've just talked about is in there. Yeah. Uh, which I'm considering writing some extra chapters or a new smaller version uh, with a new title called In Between the Lines because the first one was called The Life and Lines of Brandon Block, uh, which was quite apt at the time. Well, not at the time, but it was quite apt for what I was describing. Um, yeah. So my book came out in 2011. Um, again, it's a, it's a sort of, a diary of Clubland and my behaviours back then. So for those who don't know, um, I was very fortunate to be, I've always been a DJ. I think before Acid House, let's say. Um, it was Rare Groove, wasn't it? Rare, Rare Groove, soul, funk, hip hop. I do a lot of those soul parties again now, which I love. Um, I, uh, you know, local disco, my best mate, Ali, we were, um, you know, we were, partners in the DJ, we bought our bit of kit, we travelled London doing various gigs everywhere, pretty much like much of the other DJs back in the day. Uh, no techniques decks because they weren't around then. Um, mm. As soon as they come, though, we got them. Um, and, you know, I suppose progression, that progression you create from pubs to nightclubs, nightclubs to, you know. Um, and you, you promoted, didn't you? In the early days, I've got, let me just consult my notes. Well, I mean, I I, 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 I wouldn't say we were promoters as such. Well, maybe we, we had, well, actually tell a lie. I was part of opening the Fly Records, which was Charlie Chester, for those of you who know. Fly was a very big record label back in the day. Also Club Night, which myself and Dean Thatcher, another great song, Northern Soul DJ started. Um, we did promote a couple of nights. Myself and Dean went to another Sunday afternoon session Thirst, that was at Haven Stables in Ealing. Uh, I also went to promote a Sunday night, very famous Sunday night in London called Fubar, which obviously means fucked up beyond all recognition, which we mostly were at that time, with uh, <laughs> my very good friend Lisa Loud. 
we promoted that club. Then we became very popular. We used to queues down the road every Sunday night. Uh, basically, that was like the continuation of um, the week or the weekend, let's say, and then the start of the next week. Um, so, yes, promoted. Uh, uh, but then alongside that, I mean, uh, I went to Ibiza in that time in 1990 with Alex P. We're actually my best mate, Baggy, God rest his soul. Um, we'd met, I'd met Alex like a couple of years previous. We'd played together. We, 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 you know, we got, we hit it off. We didn't see each other a lot after that until I went to Ibiza and I got a message through various channels saying Alex is, uh, here on the island somewhere. Uh, uh, spending <laughs> spending time at the pleasure of the Guardia Seville, I think it was, uh, saying, can you meet him at Space um, tomorrow morning or whatever it was? He wants you to come and DJ with him at his club. And I went, yeah. So there actually, there was a night that had ensued before that, which was a bit involved. And uh, Alex had actually nicked a bus full of passengers to drive <laughs> to drive home from Pasha because he'd he, <laughs> Lost his lift or couldn't find the cab. So he jumped on the passenger bus and drove it full of people, obviously not stopping at any of the stops. You know, that you can picture that, you know, people's eyes flip past the train station when you're going really fast. Yeah. Trying to catch, and that's them looking for their stops, ringing the bell, going, oh, he missed my stop. On the back of that, he got arrested and uh, sort of turned up at my place first thing in the morning, worse for wear, swearing and shouting, and then said, I'll meet you at the space tomorrow, and disappeared again. So that morning, the next morning, after a great night out, we went to space, took all my records, and as far as that goes, that was the first day I DJed the space with Alex, and that was the first day I got literally got um, Pepe Resilio, the owner, said, "Right, I'm going to put you on the, I'm going to employ you now, and put you on the books." So when was that? Ninety. Ninety-one. So you were you were there early then, really, in terms of the. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, I went in 1990 with Charlie Chester to organise. The, the short film about chilling, the documentary that we made. Uh, he then took back a load of DJs, Primal Scream and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then um, missed out on going back with him because for some reason. Anyway, that that's another story. But um, yeah, and then went back with Alex and, you know, the rest is history about the space terrors. It was, was there a lot of other DJs from the London scene then going over or just you guys? Well, no, at that particular time, obviously there had been, you know, Danny Rapping, Paul Oakenfold, Trevor Funk, Johnny, Wook, Johnny uh, Walker and Nicky Holloway had been in 87, 86, 87, Nancy Noise. And they brought that back, that sound, the Balearic sound with the club's spectrum. Mm. Uh, the trip uh, story, which is Nicky's club. And then there was Spectrum with Trevor Funk, Colin Up, Paul Oakenfold. Uh, and then obviously Danny started Shum. These all clubs at the back of that sort of Ibiza experience, let's say. Um, but then myself, I moved out there for that year in Ibiza, 91. I went for the whole summer. Uh, but there was no one else DJing out there as such from the club scene, let's say, in London, myself and Alex. There was DJs who were obviously doing the, the local bars, and, but it weren't clubs. It wasn't the club stuff. Yeah. So well, basically, me and Alex were playing the space, but then on top of that, we was getting asked by all the other clubs because space was so successful. Every other club, Amnesia, we played Amnesia, had a residency there while on a Tuesday. We had a residency at Paradise, had a residency at Space, obviously had a residency at Pasha at Monday nights, had a residency at Coup on a Thursday night. So we was doing every night of the week, basically. Um, and that led to partying hard, 
How, how old would you have been at this time then? I've got, do you know what? I can't even work it out. 20... So six, 26, is that all right? 26. Because you got, you got to have some energy to party like that. 24. So basically you were young enough to have the energy to do that. Oh yeah, make it million percent. Was it all um was it all like acid house and stuff you were playing or or was there scope to play soul and funk and stuff like that? Well no, no back then obviously uh we were playing more acid house, but then in space we played sort of a bit of everything, really. It was very eclectic. It was a bit like the how I suppose you could call it the Balearic sound. We uh mm. we championed cross section records, but because of space being such a um multicultural incredible club we used to meet djs from and and it was very soon after the space was done but all the djs from the rest of the world came uh we had djs from germany from belgium from france from italy and they were all big communities there at that time but you know in their own little rights and they all had an experience of like clubland at that time and so Fortunately, we got to meet all these wonderful people, these great DJs, all these fantastic different types of music which was coming in. They were all making their own versions of sort of like house music. So the Germans were very into like their uh, new, but Belgium was like new beat. Also, uh, the main, mainland Spanish had a, a sound called Bacalao, which is which is really tough house, like techno, old days. Uh, the, the Italians were very big into their disco sample tracks. Um, you know, the Germans were into their sort of techno-y, uh, techno-y get out, so I suppose early days of trance and techno. It wasn't so noisy, but it was really cool. Uh, obviously, the Americans were into their deep house and acid house. So there was all this wonderful music, all these wonderful people. We met every one of them, and we, had, and we made friends with every one of them, you know, and they all, you asked to come and play on the Space Terrace, so we used to let come and DJ. Sasha, Dickweed, Morale, all early days. I mean, just to mention a few, but there were so many more. Mark Spoon from um, Stella and Spoon, uh, West Bam. God, um, so many. German, Dorian Graves. There was Dorian Graves, sorry, in the club in Germany. Um, loads. Loads and loads of DJs, all different places in Europe. You know, Chico Secchi, um, Obviously, Daniel Devoni from Black Box we used to come and play. We used to play a lot there. There was always it was very fortunate, very lovely days. Yeah. So you were like really, really ingrained at kind of the dawn of the superstar DJ, then, right? Yeah. And you know what? You're not. You, it's, so many people say that. I suppose yes. I never thought of it like that, but I, I, I suppose yeah. yes, we were. Um, that DJ became a really big part of life soon after. I think it was to think the impact of the clubbing days that everyone had. Uh, that whole clubbing thing was so well thought of at the time that the DJs playing mm. the music were like, I suppose, we became famous. Um, so I suppose superstar DJs were what we are. Yeah. Yeah. So when you came back to, did you come straight back to England after that summer then? I, I came back to England every summer, every winter for um, sort of October to as soon as I can get out to Ibiza again. But by this time, I, what had also happened with my success as a DJ is my drug habit had got into uh, realms of ridiculousness. And um, obviously the constant partying and the constant out being out and constant, um, you know, hedonism, music, clubbing, mm. whatever, it was taking its toll. Um, 
because not only would you just party all through summer, party all through winter as well, because obviously club scene had just taken off like a, it spread like wildfire, you know, around the world. Every night was a club night. You know, I remember in 88 going out every night of the week yeah. to very small clubs and it carried on like that for since I can remember. And then, you know, um, my habit spiralled into the realms of unwellness and just stupidity, really. Um, did you did you see that happening at the time? Was it something where you're like, I know this is getting worse, or are you just totally oblivious? There was a moment, and I thought, I know I I know I have a problem now. I know I can't stop this on my own, but I'm not ready to stop. And in, in all honesty, my mm-hmm. thinking was, if I keel over doing this, then I'm all right doing it. I was ready to go because I, I, I obviously what's known to me now is I have a, obviously had a lot of underlying trauma, which I might attribute to the, that attitude of, well, look, you know, I, if I if I die, I die. I'm not bothered, so I think. But mm. obviously, I was bothered because you know it, I was very ill. I had many illnesses at that time. Uh, which I've cooked through my, uh, you know, my partying, let's say, um, and I wasn't dying quick enough. I was in too much pain daily, and the, and the drugs weren't masking the pain anymore. Doesn't matter how much I took, I was taking obscene amounts of drugs. And it still wasn't masking the pain because I was so ill physically. Were there people around you that were trying to? kind of help you help you clean up and control or were you around people that were don't yeah but don't forget that you're asking be back back cleaning up this is 1996 mm. this is not a time where people knew about stuff like that this is the, yeah. people weren't aware of it people weren't you know if you said drug addiction they'd go what's that you know like we wear that it's only when you go to an aa or a ca meeting you know about addicts it's like it's an old word and a great label i don't like but you know that whole sort of stigmatized, uh, private, or don't say anything environment is where you end up. But that's the only place available to you. No other. Whereas now we have many models of getting better, many models of thinking, yeah. of discovering how our brain works, how our uh, how to manage trauma, how to deal with trauma, therapies, you know, therapists uh, by the, the dozen who are all great at doing that work. And, you know, slowly, humanity is starting to realize that we need connectivity where you can get help from our fellow human and we can get the support we need because you know some one nugget of information from someone could be that key to 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 changing your your way of thinking or your you know your neural pathway that you need to do um so what what was the thing that kind of the straw that broke the camel's back what was it that made you seriously that be like right i've got to do this now i I couldn't take any more. I couldn't do any more drugs. I was sitting in a hospital asking for painkillers and, you know, diazepans, hypnols and everything to make me go sleep or to wake me up or to, you know, anything I could get my hands on. And I, I just realized I couldn't take any more. My body said to me, I can't take any more. My brain said to me, I can't take any more. Had you been able to keep DJing up until this point? Because sometimes with people, they can kind of just keep riding the wave. Oh, no. Look, I was I was a functioning, whatever you want to call it. I could, yeah, I could do, yeah. But what I'd done is I'd stopped going to gigs because I couldn't be bothered. Right. I prefer, to, I prefer to stay in my local pub with the lads and get smashed and then just carry on getting smashed without having to travel three or four hours up the road 
or mm. you know do three or four gigs within a night, which was tiring because my body was I was beginning to get tired now. So I was like, it'd be cheaper for me to stay here and do instead of going up the road and having to spend all that money I'm going to earn on gear by staying awake and by going to these places. So I, I ended up cancelling lots of gigs, um, which wasn't great. But for me at the time, that's where I was. That's where I was at. Um, so in a way, I don't know. I was minim Maybe I was minimising my own sort of harm minimisation in a way. Yeah. God. Quite a mad place to be, mate. So what, what was your process then of kind of self-care and getting better? Look, I'm always very grateful for that moment of clarity because if I didn't have that moment of clarity, I wouldn't be here today, right? I know that. I'm quite, yeah, I'm quite, you know, aware of that, that that's the case. Uh, so... I, I suppose that yeah, I was I was only able to give myself self care after I'd started dealing with the the the, the self loathing or the self despair, mm. let's say, because you don't you don't this is a, that's one way of not taking care of yourself, right? Taking loads of drugs and drinking or whatever. There's loads of other ways of not taking care of yourself: the way we eat, the way we don't exercise, the way we the way we think, the way we stress, the way we you know we buy into with a, the, you know, we make ourselves ill with our stress anyway. We know that. Yeah. Um, and what we take in information-wise, what we absorb, all can be contributed to that. You know, we're, and we're, and we're, we're humans, so we like to experience stuff that makes us feel good, even for a short space of time, because we're generally tuned into feeling bad on the whole. And I mean, I'm generalizing, I shouldn't, but we're, we're, we're kept at a level of sort of just below massive stress, by what we read in the papers, what we look at the news, you know, what life throws at us. We generally function in a little bit of stress. Does that make sense? Mm. We need a bit of stress to wake up in the morning, a bit of adrenaline to get us out of bed. But what we do is we generally pick our phones up and then we level out that stress. We release cortisol straight away because we're thinking, oh. And then as opposed to saying, what do we get to do tomorrow? We go, what have I got to do today? You know, um, what have I got to do today? It says, what do I get to do today? So it's, it's about the language we use. It's about um, information we're fed. Um, but for me, the self-care thing was just stopping doing what I was doing. For that time, for that time, for me, that was my self-care. Just getting my uh, sitting with my head and sitting with my anxiety, my, my fear and my stress and my rewiring my brain after I put so much gear in it. I'm lucky to be anywhere near sanity as it is. So... My self-care, which is not putting myself in those environments. But I did DJ, carried on. I didn't stop DJ and I didn't stop seeing my mates and didn't stop all the other stuff. I just, I white knuckled it, I suppose, in a way. Did, did you did you have, because you did, because in my notes I've got that you went into um, Capio Nightingale Hospital. Yes. Um, so did you have kind of accountability partners and things that helped you through through that time or anything? Not really. I mean, there was aftercare groups. There was support networks in within that environment. I was I was told to go to you know the twelve step fellowship meetings, which I did for a while. Uh, CA. Um, I had a sponsor who relapsed not long after I was with him, and you know went on a bad one again. Um, 
that that was, you know, uh, I never did that. You see, I never relapsed. I went to, I was adamant and my decision was so final. There was no danger of that. But I'm in this support network. I'll tell you who my mentor is to this day. And he was this, he my psychiatrist at that time. He was the consultant psychiatrist to Westminster and Chelsea and also to the Capio Nightingale, which was like the first real mental hospital for dealing with um, you know, addictive behaviours in London. His name's Dr. William Shanahan. He's now the consultant head psychiatrist to whole Priory Group. Wow. And he's now my, he's still my mentor to this day. So he speaks to me for free whenever I need to speak to him because he said, you're my star pupil. You always have been. You took so much gear. I never knew how, I never knew how you survived what you did. And yet you're here <laughs> to this day. He's quoted in my book. And um, yeah. it, you're here to this day. You help your people. So he refers people to me. Uh, who he can't help in that hospital, maybe, or you think maybe do some do some help outside of that environment. So, in the late nineties, then, when you were going through this this kind of experience, um, would you ever talk to people about kind of getting therapy and things? Because it's even up until like a couple of years ago, if you'd say to someone, "I'm having therapy," they'd just go, "Why do you need that? What's that all about?" I never spoke to anyone really about that stuff back then. Not in those, in the nineties was sort of a, it was just so unknown about and, and not, you know, what, what is this? You can't even start to me to explain this stuff. It was only like the two thousands for me when I was able mentally and also to, to even start venturing out to, to, uh, uh, to do this sort of stuff because I, I was struggling because I, I you know, I'd done so much damage to my head um, mm. that it took me a long, long time to rewire a lot of neural pathways, i.e. around, you know, uh, my my fear, my anxiety, my self-worth, you know, struggling with, I struggled with food a bit. Uh, I mean, now I have the tools and many, many of them to be able to, to you know, be aware of anything that goes on like that. Um, but yeah, back then, it, I would see my, therapist my my psychiatrist i'd see him once every however it was um every six months or so but he was really my only sort of um regular therapy i've been you know i've spoken to people intermittently before but never had a proper i've never felt i don't know what it is he's probably i think because he had i don't know what it is he, he he was my, uh, how do you say, my higher power in a way, I suppose, mm. for want of an explanation. Um, not that I, you know, uh, into that necessarily. I mean, I knew we all have our higher power. I think our higher powers or whatever helps us, you know, get through whatever they are. Um, he sees, I suppose he's my higher power. And, you know, um, I still speak to him. So um, it wasn't too, as I said, it wasn't too late in the 2000s that, that sort of stuff was starting to be talked about. Yeah. I mean, it, it must have been mad the the sort of late nineties, like your kind of level of fame and kind of being in the tabloids and things like that. It must've been really hard to, to try and rationalize what you've been going through whilst you got that kind of, you've, you've got a lot more noise than most of us at that time. Yeah. I mean, but you see that, that all that stuff happened after I'd stopped taking drugs. Yeah, all that sort of uh, fame and I suppose success and uh, you know, as you say, the tabloids and uh, you know, I had my own column in the Daily Star. I had uh, MTV, 
was doing TV shows left, right, and centre. All those I love the 80s shows, I love the 90s shows. I had my own mm. TV on a satellite channel called Blockhouse Brits on the back of the Brit Awards, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, Top of the Pops had a hit record. I mean, more notoriety and fame came from all that stuff. Yeah. So, and, and it was never, never a concern that I would ever go back to the, the lifestyle, ever. I never, ever thought that. I never knew, I never knew that would never happen. So I suppose very grateful for that 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 wonderful part of life, you know, to be a lot of some people go, Well, I wish not an aspiration, but you know, to have that fall into your nap type thing. When I wasn't actually mm. aiming for any of that, that wasn't any of my goals in life to be on TV or but you know, I've done that. I've had the experience of everything. I've been very fortunate, I suppose, you know, to say I've been on TV, I've been on well, I don't know, I've been on Sebi Big Brother. I went on other reality shows back in the day. Yeah, I mean, you've you've hit on a couple of things that I did want to ask about. So obviously, like the Brits is a thing. Um, I was wondering with that if there was if that had kind of any advantages. I, I, I well, I mean, uh, uh, someone said to me after that, "You're a household housewife's favourite now." Um, yeah, I, I mean, the Brits is 20, 20, 23 years ago now, mate. I've been mm. spoken about it so many times. It, it's it's just yeah. a moment in uh, 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 notoriety, let's say, which, you know, uh, I'm sort of known for a little bit. So it doesn't surprise me back then. Um, it was quite funny. <laughs> and looking back on it, and looking back on it, it, it is very funny. And, uh, you know, the fact that it, it, it took me about one minute to make the decision whether I was going to collect this made-up award you know, spontaneity. Um, great fun. But, yeah, as you say, um, incredible. Um, and the other thing that I noticed that I found really interesting was something that mentioned about about part of the reason for wanting to go into Big Brother being to get away from your phone. Who I said that? Something, that? I read something around that, yeah, saying that you kind of wanted a detox from your phone, effectively, and... Because because you, you you're quite organised, aren't you? With like when you check your emails and stuff like that. Now I, I you know what they I, I, I put that on my emails because it it kept me. It keeps what the idea was that people go oh if they read all the way down go well I'll only send emails because I found that we are all consumed by technology, right? And unfortunately, this is it's not great, right? Uh, it's yeah. changed us. It's changed our mindsets forever, never to go back. So I think what we've got to do is be mindful of how much we use it and how often we're on it because we, without knowing, you get into that, you know, uh, the rabbit hole or, you know, you're, you're, you're firing neurons all the time. And what that does is just gives you a brain that you get, get take you into burnout mm. and people aren't aware of it. People are just, you know, constantly, oh, where my phone, my phone, I need my phone to get. And, and I just find it, I found it back then that the technology was getting really, uh, you know, very very fast moving, and you know, like things like YouTube and all that sort of thing. It basically, it's given people one of the most vital human needs, a, a, a need for significance. Yeah, right. So, I think back in the day, people had certain people had to have a voice because people were leaders. People, certain people were leaders. People uh, had to had something to say. Whereas now, anyone can say anything, right? And they can. And the thing I find difficult is the thing that people pick on people. And they say the most horrible, deep, 
hurtful things which which hurt. You know, the power of words is is unbelievable. And you know, how that's worked out, how that's become because you're not actually in pain, but it causes pain. You say hurtful things to people, they get pain they get pain from it. It can be you know, anxiety, fear, whatever it is. So a sound that we make with our voices causes anxiety, pain and fear. Um, and this is where humanity is going to struggle moving forward a lot. I think, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of awareness now and a lot of people aren't buying into all that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, unless you're mindful about the time we spend on it, what we look at, we will get, you know, and I was aware before, sorry, just, uh, sorry to rabbit on a bit, Adam, but I was aware about this whole mental, you're right about big brother. So maybe at that time I was aware of that stuff. I knew that there was a uh, imminent sort of worldwide mental health pandemic happening anyway because of right. because of this, right? I knew that. And that's why I, I started this group at the Ministry of Sound. I started my own, uh, I started with a friend of mine called Paul Byrne. We started a group called Tuned Out at the Ministry of Sound, which is now bi-monthly. Uh, we had guest speakers. It's a free group. We are invite lovely people to come out and share their stories of inspiration and stuff. So I had um, Gox come and spoke. We had last month we had um, Pat Tony. Um, got this month I've got Kevin Bishop, Barry Ashworth from the Dub Pistols. I've had uh, lots of people in the music industry. Mr. C spoke. I've had Jack Jumping Jack Frost. Uh, many, all these people on our quests for you know bettering themselves all come and spoke. So I realised I realised I was getting into that whole thing. So I take first Facebook on my phone. I'll probably take Instagram off my phone. The only thing I use it for is sharing stuff, gigs and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And probably when my retreats go on, that sort of thing. Um, but generally, I try not to get involved, immersed in too much of that. I check my emails once a day, twice a day maybe. I go on Instagram every couple of days maybe to just have a look, uh, I suppose. I, I mostly look at cat videos now. and Yeah, <laughs> honestly, it's true. And... Um, you know, like that sort of um, nice things, the dodo and all that. Um, so, yeah, it's about being mindful about your environment and what you're, you're subjecting yourself to. So can you just kind of talk us through your journey? Because, because now, just to give a bit of context, you do a lot of work with people around coaching and you've done a load of qualifications over the years. So that, how did you first start that? What was it that made you think, I want to be there for people? I want to, because it's not just like you're mucking about doing this. You've really, really gone in on it. I mean, that I'm, I'm attempted to, I'm toying with the idea of doing a counselling qualification now because I've done some of it already. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I've done a lot of other stuff which enables me, let's say, to work with people on a certain level, which is, Enough, I think, for now. I'm not as I, I look. I do work with people. People often come to me and say, and I help them. I don't mind that. I think yeah, that that came to me around the late two, uh, two the early two thousands when I started to feel I've learned a lot of stuff about myself and how I, you know, react about certain situations and about drugs and drink and blah blah blah. Uh, you know, I'm ready to help people. People were asking me anyway back then. You know, why? How can I do it? Yeah get off this and the other 
And I went to work for a drug service because I thought, you know what, I'm going to go volunteer somewhere. Um, turned out my mate was running the place. She said that by all means, come and volunteer. It'd be lovely to have you. I need to put you some training courses because you can't just come in here and talk. It's not like that. So I did my city and guild, did my MVQs, did my various cognitive behavioral uh, workshops and various motivational interview workshops. You know, uh, wrote essays and stuff. And, you know, I've done uh, more recently, I worked for the episode of Seed Trust, which is again another organization to help people uh, recover from bloodborne viruses, which generally transferred from sharing needles. Um, it's a training courses with them. So, yeah, I've constantly, I, I've sort of put my, I've, I've calmed down a bit, let's say, because it's quite demanding work, it can be quite emotionally draining. Um, so, without getting the support, Behind you, if you're going to do that work, you need to get um, some supervision. You need to get uh, someone on your side to be able to unload that stuff too. Yeah. So, so I generally help people in a different guise now. I may open do my coaching package. I offer it again. Again, it's like, how do I feel about that? I I generally just don't mind helping people with a bit of stuff if they want me to have a chat to them. I prefer to refer them on. Uh, signpost them, have a chat, say I could put you in touch with people who could help you, which I do. Um, and I'm happy doing that. But that's a great thing to do because, because with your kind of profile, you know, just just being able to make people aware that it's okay and there's people that you can talk to is that because it's, I mean, the thing is with self work. I don't know if you'll agree, but I feel I've done I've done different bits of self work over the years, and I think it's really really powerful. Um, and it's just the starting it's the, that's the hard thing once once you get that little start and you get a bit of benefit from it then you can really kind of dive in and there's there's so many ways you can approach it there's coaching there's counseling there's just a load of book there's all sorts of things you can do but it's just just having that impetus to actually be ready to look at yourself because it's scary of course it is uh, you know what? I spoke to someone earlier. Funny, so, do you ask me that question or talk about that subject? Uh, a friend who's doing a level five counseling, and I was saying, right, oh, well, how good's that? Level three and level four are the ones to get you sort of quantified. You can go up to level counseling five, which goes a bit more into, you know, into the uh, cognitive stuff. But everyone says how mental health. Well, look, it's the last thing we look at. It always has been. And now it's the first we need to look at. Because we can't function without our minds working right, mm. okay? So, you know, when people have illnesses, you have to have an empathy for them because, you know, it's tough. And when your brain's not working right, we don't work right. The autom autonomic processes, autonomic processes, which go about breathing, seeing, all our senses, all controlled by our brain, right? It's our feelings, our emotions, our physical, our mental well-being, if it's all out of whack, because you can't do anything. You're not able to. This is why workplaces are suffering, because of people being stressed out, being people overworked, too many too many uh, expectations, uh, too many uh, you know targets to reach, which are unrealistic. This whole thing. And people don't aware of that, so you put demands on people. Instead of saying, right, let's see what you're able to do. If you're, and they're, you know, like, so... If we don't manage our own, as you say, expectations about our own self work, we'll never get anywhere. And you need to do something. 
you don't need to look i dived in i've dived out again i don't i it's it's called my one of my therapists i say a friend of mine she calls it paralysis analysis paralysis yeah so you can overdo it you get to a rabbit hole of you know all this reading all this mm. work you've got an it process you've got an it set into place and then you've got to decide what works for you because you could read and read and read and read it overwhelms me because I just go, Jesus, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to sit down and go, right, let's let's look at that and, and work on that. It's so, like, but for me, there's a guy called Dr. Joe Dispenza and his stuff is incredible, right? And it, for me, it made sense. It was my sort of wow moment, if you get what I'm saying. Why do I do this? Why do I think like this? Why do I have this, you know, tendency to, nip into the old anxiety world and why do I still and, and I heard him talking about that's me mate that's what it is and that's what helped me to realise that when I start thinking a certain way I think all oh, right, I get it I know what's happening uh, I also developed a, an amazing skill and I don't know and I say it's amazing when I tell people they go wow of, I could feel my thought the process I could feel the thought I could feel it go into my spinal cord I could feel it go down the back of my spine into my belly, mm. the emotional center, and I could feel it went up in whatever form it was. If it was a negative or positive thought, I could feel that process. So I know when I'm going to get an anxiety, an anxious thought, or a negative thought. And that's like gold, really. Because it, it, it gives me a chance to go, right, this is going to happen. Or I could try and chase the thought before it goes all the way. Or, you know, you have a, an awareness type thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's kind of like, it's, it's about the search, isn't it? And finding the thing that works for you. Yes, absolutely. You have to, but as you say, there's so much out there, so much you can go and, you know, immerse yourself in, but find the stuff that works for you. Don't be thinking that you have to do so many things. Just find what works for you because you will get overwhelmed. It's better to be underwhelmed mm. and able to cope with it than being overwhelmed and being, oh, can't do it, can't do it. This is what we do. Yeah. It's fairly unknown. Take it too much on another, you know, you, you'll know about that. Yeah. And all of this stuff equates to physical, doesn't it? It's like if you go, right, I need to lose weight. So you start going to the gym seven days a week. You start getting a bad knee. You start getting a wonky hip. You're getting burnout. You're getting a bad, you know, doing doing things in a manageable way and then just having a week off sometimes if it's too yeah. much. It's it's all about this kind of balance. Absolutely. Life balance, mate. You've got it. Inner coin, inner phrase. Yeah. It, um, this, yeah, this is all really interesting stuff. Like, I love talking about things like this. And this is why it's great to get you on because you've kind of done this through your own journey. Thanks, Mark. Um So what what does kind of like the week-to-week life look like at the moment? Because you're doing the Me Soul shows, aren't you? My Soul. Um, yeah, My but, Soul, uh, beg your pardon. Uh, yeah, um... It's it's very balanced at the moment. I do my gym three times a week. I do other days where I go dipping in the cold, cold sea with my mates. We do that early morning. Uh, I get on. I get a chance to do most of my stuff in a day. I could do podcasts with people. Um, it's getting more manageable, as you say. Um, and you know, in the winter, I don't like going out so much. I don't mind doing the cold dip in the morning. They get home, put the fire on, warm up. Um, it's fairly manageable. And, you know, touch wood, I can still DJ uh, once once at the weekend. Um, but it gives me time to look at the other stuff I want to do again, like the coaching and 
right in the program. Uh, but again, I've taken some downtime, Adam, in the last few months, um, just to just to get myself into a place where I want to find my passion again. It's a great thing to do. Like I've spoke to people on this and, you know, you get, I was saying to someone about like Eric Clapton won't play guitar for six months. Oh, that's maybe a quote from 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's like, you don't have to do everything all the time. Sometimes taking a step back and working out, it's, it's like with goal setting, isn't it? Like I did a bit, I did some goal setting exercises at one point and I had a good friend of mine who was kind of helping me through all this. And, and it was about like, saying you want to do something, but like, is the reason you want to do it true? Like, do you know yourself? Are you being honest with yourself that you want to do this for things, th this reason? Because if you can be absolutely true with yourself about who you are, which is another thing we don't always do because we think we're someone or we think we should be someone when we're actually someone else. Um, and if you can get into that and, and, and find the right sort of thing that you want to achieve at the right time for the right reason, then that's when, these things are a lot easier to do. Well, I'm a goal mapping, goal mapping practitioner, don't you know? So goal mapping is the best goal setting model I've ever seen. And it's not just about, see, smart goals are orders, right? They're like demands. They're like settings. So, right, you must do this by this certain time in a realistic, achievable time frame. There's no passion in it. And what you're saying is you've got to find your passion my passion so are the goals you're trying to achieve have they got the right reasons are they valuable are they are you passionate about them do they have meaning for you or are you just doing them so this is what the goal mapping allows you to find out and it, it's a great model and you're right it, you can't set goals and you can't set goals from a negative place anyway when you're on the back foot of trying to you know, motivate yourself in bad situations. You start trying to set goals, you'll never achieve because you won't be motivated the right way. Or you set the goals, the mini goals, to be able to get yourself into that place where you can achieve the bigger ones. But yeah, right. I think it's about finding your passion, downtime, not overwhelming yourself. Give yourself some, if you're able to do that, obviously, it's not always a luxury yeah. that people can do. But if you can, take some time from chasing the goals. Sit down and say, what, what, what matters to me? What really, really matters to me? And am I achieving these goals for the right reasons? You're right. And then if you say to yourself, yes, then you carry on. If you can say to yourself, not really. As you say, the reason we feel like we're other people because we look in comparisons all day long. 100%. All day long, you're comparing yourself to others. So you're not that, 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 or that wonderful saying, authentic self. How's that even possible when you're looking at, as far as be someone else every moment of the day. You're never your authentic self unless you put that down. And then you say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I'll do it for me and I'll do it for no one else and I'll do it whether, it, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. But the longer the sooner you let go of those comparisons and expectations and live where you want to live, then it's very difficult, don't get me wrong. But if you could do that, then you've achieved some sort of authenticity. Yeah. Amazing. Right, mate. I'm going to let you go now. Um, that's been absolutely fascinating. Really, really good fun. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I always love talking about this stuff, Ed. Uh, and, you know, talking to like-minded people is always wonderful because there's always stuff that you – I was quite impressed by your 
knowledge as well, mate, and the fact that you've been on a journey and it's nice to hear that sort of stuff. Uh, obviously, the questions you asked me made sense. And it wasn't just about, oh, I took so much cocaine, I could fucking hardly stand up. So, all good. Yeah, yeah. And no, no, I appreciate that. I, I want it to be a different experience from the obvious. Because it is about, for me, with DJing, it it creates so many opportunities. It helps us with, with a lot of things. Because for me, it was like, um, when my son got to two, I just kind of like felt a little bit lost. Mm. I was like, well who am I? What am I? And that, you know, I've had got so much positive experience and good friends and things from DJ. And I was like, I need to kind of get into that a bit again, yeah. if I can. To, so doing this whole podcast is part of that. It's sharing this experience and understanding what boxes it's ticked for different people and, and things like that. So yeah, always, always love to talk about these sorts of things myself. Absolutely mate. Well done. Um, yeah, and you, you know what you were saying at the start as well about meditating, about the breath yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Like I used to meditate a lot, and I, I say a lot. You know, I used to meditate daily, and in probably a couple of years, there was maybe only two times where I felt that utter presence. Yes. But wow, when you do it, it's absolutely incredible. I've only had it a couple of times in my life, really, and that was one of them in Ibiza, and. Um, had the whole spiritual guide thing and everything come and take me up to the mountain and uh indian chief and you know my inner child my child came together with me as an adult and my father was there fucking unbelievable amazing and you know walking to the top of this mountain with holding each other's hands and then getting there and dancing around the fire and stars and moons and bloody hell mate the tribe come together type thing you know uh yeah. But as you say, it's those moments are very rare. If you can get them, then you know it's doable. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, yeah, I'll let you get going, mate, and um, and I'll speak to you soon. All right, listen, you take care, mate. It's lovely to talk to you. Let me know when you're going to put it out. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at oncedjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at oncedjpodcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon.